Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you to all of our scripture readers. <clears throat> we are biting off, if, again, if this is your first time, we take uh, God's word serious, and so we jump in and we go verse by verse. Uh, Judges happens to be a little bit longer, 40 verses-ish per chapter, and we're going to read it because it, it is God's word, and that scripture reading will preach a message in itself. And so uh, let's jump right into our text. We're walking through this story, this narrative. Again, if you're new, we seem to have this cycle that continues. And I, I don't know, Kevin, if I have that, or Nick, if I have that image every week on there. Look at that. Kevin, you the man. Uh, we see this cycle continue. Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here in this part of this chapter is no different. They are handed over to Midian for seven years. Oppression hits, only this time in this particular instance, we see it hits a bit different. Now, the Israelites aren't living uh, amongst their enemies anymore. Instead, this, this oppression, the Israelites, they've been forced to leave their homes. They've made shelters in the mountain ranges, if you will. So usually they're just living amongst uh, their enemies because it's easier to do that. And sometimes they oppress their enemies and sometimes the enemies still oppress them. And it's the cycle. They do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so for seven years, though, we see in this instance, the Midianites would go into the land of Israel. And here's what they would do. At the time of harvest, it was very strategic. They would go in and they would show up and they would take everything. Israelites are, are, are harvesting their fields. It's the time of harvest. And in walks big brother who says, no, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And they would take all of the Israelites' produce, their crops, their animals, whatever they would want, they would come to them and take whatever. They left nothing for Israel, which is what our, our, uh, the author says, a bit like the idols that they would bow down to. Over-promise and under-deliver over and over again. The author actually says they were like a swarm of locusts. They would come into the pasture land and they would devastate all of the crops of God's people, live, leaving Israel impoverished. Nothing left behind except for the scraps. And the results, seven years of this, what happens? Verse 6, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. But unlike other times where we see God is going to, going to deliver, he has mercy, he appoints a judge, but before that happens, we see something new happen here. Look at verse 7. They cried out, and the Lord sent a prophet to them. Like we're expecting, based off of this cycle, and we're going to get there, we're expecting God to just step in and raise up a judge, but what does he do? He sends a prophet first. Before the sermon, look, look here, before the sermon, or before the Savior, he gives them a sermon. Before he just jumps in and intervenes, he actually gives them a sermon. And what does this messenger, this prophet, say in his sermon? He says, remember, you're going to hear this over and over again, remember what I have done and what you have done. Look and see what I have done to you and for you. I'm the one that rescued you. I drove you out. I drove them out, your enemies, before you. I blessed you. I am the Lord your God. Do not fear these gods. And you, what did you do? You chose not to listen to me. So this is the message. This is the sermon here. We see it several times throughout, but God is holy and loving. I want you to hear the heart behind this message from this prophet. God's holy. 
And he's also loving. I've spoken, on, I've spoken many a times on this. He loves. He always loves you. He is faithful. But God's also a holy God. And he's not going to stand with anything that is unholy. So out of a heart of love first, God sends them a message of conviction first before he intervenes and raises up a judge to rescue them. And I, I think it's because the people of God here are regretful and not repentant. I'll say that again. I, I think it's because the people cried, who cried out to him are actually just regretful and not repentant. Because there's a clear distinction between the two. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Now hear me on this. Both regret and repentance, they're going to be marked by deep sorrow and distress. Both of them. Regret man, I regret this, or I, repentance, man, I, I'm really turning and, and repenting. I'm turning back to the Lord, turning from the idols of my heart and the idols of this culture, and I'm turning to the Lord. Both, both regret and repentance are marked with such a deep sorrow and distress. However, we also know that they're completely different. And here's what I mean. Tim Keller on this, he says, worldly sorrow or regret does not produce any real change, while repentance does. Why? Regret is sorrow over the consequences of a sin, but not over the sin itself. If there had been no consequences, if you wouldn't have got caught, if you wouldn't have messed up this relationship, there would have been no sorrow. There is no sorrow over the sin for what it is in itself, for how it grieves God and violates our relationship with Him. The focus is all horizontal or worldly and not at all vertically. You just feel bad because you got caught. You just regret the consequences that you're having to endure. You feel shameful. You might even just be tired of the consequences and you just... Regretting the decision you made. Keller goes on and he says, not at all concerned about how it affects our relationship with God. You're just here, horizontal. We don't focus on what it does here. Therefore, as soon as the consequences go away, what happens? I'm just dealing with regret, horizontal, like, man, this really stinks. This is a, you know, ah, oh, woe is me. When the consequences go away, Keller says the behavior comes back. We run back to the idol's of the culture. So we don't hate sin. This is me now. We don't hate sin. We hate what it does to us and how it makes us feel. That's worldly sorrow. That is regret. So what do we do to grow out of this? What do you do with this? This message? What's missing? Well, we've got to move from this horizontal aspect of worldly sorrow and regret, and we actually have to start focusing on this vertical relationship that's at hand. I love Keller. He goes on and he says, the heart has not become disgusted with the sin itself, so sin remains rooted in the heart. The heart has not become disgusted with the sin itself, so sin remains rooted in the heart. Hear this, church. Worldly sorrow also stays regretful. 
always. Worldly sorrow just stays regretful. While repentance, hear this good news, removes all regret about the past. Why? Because real repentance comes to focus on the only real permanent result of sin, the loss of the Lord. And he says this, repentance always makes us more able to accept and begin to move past the things that happened when we realize that God has forgiven us and we haven't lost him. We feel that earthly results are rather small in comparison. Simply put, regret is all about us how I'm being hurt, or how I'm hurting others, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking, but repentance is actually all about God. How God has been grieved by my sin. How we've trampled on and spit in the face of God. As our creator and redeemer, how his saving grace is always just being used and abused. Thank you, Lord, for your grace again. Back to the idol. Thank you, Lord. And so the aim of the prophet that God sends, the heart of his message is to help them move beyond regret and actually lead them into repentance. So I lay this before each of us this morning, myself included. The reason we have a response time, just to be very clear, with several songs at the end, the reason we lead you into communion every week is because when you hear the message of the grace of God to sinners and sufferers, it demands a response. Not because I want to force you into something. Please don't hear that. But because the message of Jesus, his life, his death, his ministry, his death and his resurrection, it actually demands a response because the question is this, what will you do with it? What will you do with the message of the cross? Will you run to the one who says, I'm for you, I've forgiven you, I love you, I'm ready to forgive you, or are you going to run and turn back to the idols that are always going to leave you empty and used? That's why it demands a response. So when we hear this message, what are you sorry about? Like, is it the consequences that you're facing because of the sin, or is it the sin itself? Is it the loss of the pleasure of this particular idol, or is it the damage that has been caused to your relationship with God and others? I can't answer that for you. I have hard enough time answering it for myself. little disclaimer. If you find yourself continually falling into the same spiritual pit and you find yourself being more and more okay with that, you might just be responding with worldly sorrow and regret instead of repentance. Brothers and sisters, the beauty of community, why we we put such an emphasis on groups and life together, and why we say family of families is because we can actually learn to break this cycle together. Like we can help one another with our blind spots. Believe it or not, you have a blind spot in your life. I have a blind spot. I don't want to see sin for what it is. Sometimes I just need somebody to help come alongside me and say, hey, bro, the way you're responding to your children seems to be a bit off. What's happening? I don't know. What do you mean? Well, man, all they were desiring was your attention. And, man, you kind of snapped at them. Like, what's going on in your heart? 
I'm really tired. I'm restless. I'm, I'm dealing with all of these things. Hey, let's, let's just take some time and lay that before the Lord. That's, that's what community is. Helping each other see our blind spots, turning from our idols in all humility, letting people in to help us look more like Jesus. Why? Because we all need Jesus. That, 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 that message never changes. We all need Jesus in this message of this unnamed prophet that was sent to the Israelites at this time is that. They needed Jesus. So after he speaks to everyone, we see in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak tree. I think that's interesting. At this point in the story, a man named Gideon, as Jeff read, was having a day just like any other day that he had had in the last seven years. All of his people were being oppressed and Gideon, this angel of the Lord, sat under an oak tree, gives this message, this sermon, and then goes and sits. Interesting imagery here. Gideon's just doing his thing, threshing wheat in a wine press, as we see, stockpiling it, hiding it, if you will, from the Midianites. Normal day until it wasn't normal anymore. Now, I'm not for sure if he felt the presence of the Lord. You ever had a dog, like, at 3 a.m., like, you are sound asleep and you're sleeping so well, and that dog just lays his head there, and you, you don't see him, you don't feel him because you're sound asleep, it's 3 a.m., but all of a sudden you feel like this presence, like somebody's staring at me. Maybe not. We had this dog named Hunter, and I swear every other night he'd just, like, put his head right next to me. Why did he have to go to the bathroom at 3 a.m. every morning? I don't know. He was actually diabetic, so that's why. Um, but nonetheless, I just felt that presence. I don't know if that's what he feels or if this is like a Mr. Deeds where like he's just very sneaky and he just, the angel of the Lord appears out of nowhere. I'm assuming Gideon recognized the presence of something. The angel of the Lord appears to him and he says, the Lord is with you. Hoyer, the Lord is with you. And the conversation we see take place I think, is one of the most raw and real conversations. Gideon, seven years into oppression, doing his thing, he responds, and he's a bit frustrated. The angel calls him a warrior. Gideon looks around. God's with, with me? He responds and says, basically, this is the Matt Weaver translation, then why in the world has all this happened? The Lord's with me? Do you see what has happened? Why would all of this be taking place? Where is he now, angel? He's abandoned us. He's handed us over. I think a lot of us can actually relate to Gideon's response here, maybe more than we want to admit this morning. How easy it is, is it for us to look around at our troubled circumstances and think, where is the evidence that God is with us? Like if he's with me, and why do I find myself in all this mess? But I, I wonder if in those moments, what would happen if we actually started just asking God, real, raw conversation, God, how are you working in these circumstances for my good and your glory? Less, where are you? We're going to see this in just a second. And more, how are you working Less why and more how, God, are you working in these terrible circumstances for my good and your glory? I think that's the honest conversation that Gideon's having here. I think we look around sometimes. We wonder why God doesn't bring us help. 
Why don't you just step in? Why don't you just do something? Remove all of these terrible circumstances from us. But what if God was actually up to something that you couldn't see? What if we actually believe what Paul says in Romans 8 when he says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The last four weeks for Cody and I have have been a bit rough in the sense of, um, man, just, I'll just tell you, and I don't share this for sympathy. God has done some really awesome things. But in the last four weeks, our air conditioning at our house, our central heat and air has gone out twice. And it's still out, and we're waiting on a part to get here. Lord willing, it's fixed, and all of that. Um, Our dishwasher went out, and then two weeks ago, our washing machine locked up, and we thought, hmm, that's interesting, called, and uh, the motherboard went out, and our four-year-old, five-year-old unit, uh, they don't longer make that. So we had to buy a new... Uh, We had to buy a new washer, and the Lord provided. I mean, I'm not here complaining. I'm not here looking for sympathy. But on Monday, this past Monday, I go out to the deer lease or to our ranch, and I'm filling deer feeders. I'm enjoying my time. That's my Monday off. And, man, it's been a great Monday. And I go to get in my car to come home because i got to coach volleyball here at 4 o'clock. And, man, my car just doesn't start. And about a year ago, this happened. It just turns over. It's a Volkswagen it's frustrating. I called Cody and I said, hey, it's doing it again. I don't understand. I mean, I'm frustrated. She's, I don't know, maybe on the brink of about to just have an emotional breakdown. Because the whole time we're like, what is happening? All of this is piling up. I hung up the phone with Cody and I walked back to my, my dad's shop. And I just remember in the shop just thinking, I think I even said it out loud. Like, God, what, what are you trying to show me? Like, how are you working in this mess right now for my good and your glory? Like, I, I just remember crying out thinking, and this, this is all first world problems. I get that. But I'm also human. And, and the pleasures of life that we have, just when those are taken away, it's frustrating. I think you can probably all relate to that. It's frustrating. I just remember saying, God, really? Another thing. And here's the deal. No angel appeared to me under the oak tree. No angel there. I didn't hear this, you're a warrior. (laughs) But you know what was evident in it all was that we weren't alone. Like that, I think God spoke to me in that moment and was kind to remind me that I'm not alone in all of this. We had community step in and provide one thing after another. We witnessed our brothers and sisters rally around us, serving us, which is very hard for me. I'm a I can struggle with pride a little bit. I just want to do things my own, and it was hard for me, but the whole time I just kept thinking, God, there's a bigger picture at play. And in that all, I think we saw the Lord turn to us because we had nowhere else to go but to be dependent on him. And I think that's where Gideon was at. Frustrated, absolutely, but totally dependent And that's what we see Gideon in these next few verses. In verse 14, we see the angel of the Lord turn to him. Like there's something beautiful about that. God hears him. He turns toward him, not away. The Lord turns towards him in his grumbling. I think there's something to be said when we're honest with the Lord. Even when you're struggling, he's a big enough God. You can turn to him. The Lord graciously turned towards Gideon. And in that moment, Gideon is called 
and he is commissioned to be the deliverer of Israel from all of their enemies. Like we've seen this call before. If you know anything about the word of God, you can go back to Exodus. You can see how Moses was called an angel of the Lord, just like Gideon, appears to both men and speaks to them, clearly calls them. Moses, Gideon, you will deliver my people out of oppression. And both deliverers look around and they say, me? I'm going to do this? They question their own status. They question their own ability or lack thereof. Gideon says, I'm no warrior. I'm the weakest, from the weakest family. Like, hello, angel, do you see my family? It's the weakest clan. Like, if a bear is attacking us, we are the ones left behind because we're the weakest, we're the slowest. And matter of fact, not only that, I'm actually the youngest. Angel, that, that can't be that God is going to use me. There's no way I'm your guy. But none of that matters here. What matters is that God's word was spoken. You are a warrior. I am sending you. I will be with you. It's always interesting to me that God doesn't care about our social status. He doesn't care about your weakness or my weaknesses. He doesn't look at us and think, man, I wish James Dearman was just a little bit stronger. I can say that because I cross for CrossFit with him, and he's a lot stronger than me. Like, I, I don't think God's looking at him saying, man, I just wish James was a little bit stronger for this. He doesn't do that. He actually just looks at us and says, I'm enough. I've got this. I'm with you. And then he says, would you just trust me? James, would you just trust me? Becca, would you just trust me? Josh, would you just trust me? Nick, would you just... Trust me. You see, he always chooses to do his will through the weakest of these. And it's no different with Jesus Christ. So even in this, we see Gideon wrestle with his doubt and his insecurities. We see Gideon tell the angel, wait, wait here. You can follow along. I'm not going to go through it for time's sake. He basically says, wait here, I need a sign. And what does Gideon do? He goes, he prepares a meal Interesting imagery here. He tells an angel of the Lord to wait here. He was waiting by the oak tree, sitting underneath it. Now Gideon says, hey, hold tight. I'm going to go prepare this goat. I'm going, to, I'm going to bring you back this sacrifice, this meal. We're going to, you're going to eat of this meal. But instead, when he brings it back and sets it on the rock, what happens? The angel offers it up as a sacrifice. You can see he touches the tip of his staff to ignite this fire. And then the, the meal that has been prepared from Gideon, it's consumed with fire, and just like that, the stranger, prophet, disappears. I think it's in this moment that Gideon realized he was speaking with the angel of the Lord. Like He becomes a bit scared now, worried that he would die since he saw the presence. He was in the presence of God. Like It clicks with him of like, oh yeah, this is Yahweh. This is the I am, not just a prophet. Like I'm in the presence of of the Lord, but now the angel's gone and God shows up and he speaks a word. He, the father knew Gideon's feelings and he speaks a word before Gideon could and he says, do not be afraid. You surely won't die. And Gideon builds an altar. Story goes on. The Lord calls it, uh, the Lord is peace. When God shows up and speaks, the only response we have is worship. So all of this happens. Gideon does this. Pfft, 
man, the, the angel of the Lord disappears. His sacrifice is gone. He realizes that the God says, hey, don't fear. Don't be afraid. You won't die. And so when God shows up and he speaks, the only response we can have is worship. And that's what Gideon does. The call for Gideon here is that he would be fully devoted to the Lord. And in going all in on following the Lord, there are idols, literally, that need to be destroyed in Gideon's presence. God tells him to destroy the altar of Baal, an Asherah pole. And so what happens? Gideon waits. Again, follow along. He waits until nighttime. I'm sure he's a bit scared. And he took 10 men with him and did as the Lord told him. I want you to track with me on this. Israel's problem was not the Midianites. Remember, back to verse 3 through 1 through 6, we see the problems coming. It's the Midianites. Remember, they're like locusts. Israel's problem was not them. Their problem was the addiction that the Israelites had to bowing down to other gods. That's why he graciously sent a message of repentance out of a heart of love. It was never the Midianites. The Israelites, their own hearts were the problem. The Lord would not deliver them from their enemies until they destroyed their idols. Another interesting thing, Gideon's father, Joash, was the one who actually led the Israelites into idolatry. And I think it's worth noting noting here that Joash had taught his children about the Exodus, about Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. Gideon's dad, Joash, had taught his children about the Lord, who was the one who rescued all of their forefathers, and yet Joash had also chosen to serve Baal and Asherah with how he lived. You see, the Israelites had not fully abandoned their worship of God for idols. What they did is they combined it with worship of God with the idols of the land. They worship God formally. Oh, thank you, Lord. We'll cry out to you when we need you. But their lives revolved around the different idols of the day. Commerce, business, agriculture, sex, pleasure. I wonder how many of us would say we love Jesus, and yet our lives are constantly living for the things of this world. I wonder how many of our families would say, man, we love Jesus And yet we sacrifice them at the altar of busyness, sports, media, and whatever else we're all trying to keep up with. Michael Wilcock in his book, The Message of Judges, he says this, the gods have not changed, for human nature has not changed, and these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? Well, if it's modest... It, being us, the the idols of of, of our culture, what we desire is security and comfort and some reasonable enjoyment. If we're ambitious, ambitious, power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves, yet at the same time they appear persuadable 
to our manipulating them so that we can get what we want without losing our independence. He closes and he says, here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and it controls our heart. Man, God wants all of us, not an angry God at you. He's not frustrated. He's just a holy God and he says, I want all of you. And if, if you will trust me, I'm with you, I'm for you, I've gone ahead of you. I'll provide. And so Gideon finds himself at odds as we close out. He finds himself at odds with his community, his family, and in this moment, I think Gideon was risking his life. We see he would be disowned, shamed, and ultimately put to death. He just tore down the bales, the idols, the altar. He tore it down. But Gideon remembers the Lord in verse 23. Do not be afraid. You will not die. Fear did not paralyze Gideon. As the men see the altar destroyed, they want answers. They want Gideon's life. And of all the people, the one who led them into idolatry now remembers the faithful Lord, his father. Joash remembers the faithful Lord, his father. Intervenes. And he calls for Baal to make his own case. Basically says, if if you're really who you say you are, then you should make your own case. If he is really a God, he would need to contend for himself. When the God of the culture cannot, they turn to the God who is Yahweh. Gideon, who was as good as dead a few moments prior to this, is now the hero. He changed his name since Joash said, let Baal contend with him. He tore down his altar. As we move to the closing section, I'll be brief, but I want us to hear this this morning. Gideon is commissioned as a warrior. Idols are destroyed. And we're reminded of the original threat back in verse 3. Again, the Midianites. They're going to attack, and it's here in verse 34. We see the Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon. The Spirit of God clothed him, if you will. What does that mean? Well, it means the Spirit of God fell on him, empowered him to be the warrior the angel said he would be. So we see Gideon blows the ram's horn. He gets his troops. I thought about getting a ram's horn. I couldn't find one. But he gets his troops, and he tells everyone to rally behind him. And people are like, man, we're all in on this. Like, isn't it something when God lays his spirit on someone, how immediate and how remarkable that person can be when they're rooted in Christ? Against all odds, he chooses to use the weakest of these to show off his power and his glory. And that same spirit lays on you as a follower in Christ. Once dead, lost, blind, now look what God has done to you and for you and what he can do in you. For Gideon, the spirit took him from fearing death from a mob to now a local hero and now a commander of men. He's been authorized in verse 14, we saw, to act. He's been empowered to act in verse 34. He's been given the promise of God's presence in verse 12. Now the reality of all of that, and the people seem to sense this, hope has sprung up in Israel. And yet, what does Gideon do? He still asks for further evidence that God is with him. He hesitates. He puts God to test not once, but twice in the last few verses. He says, if you will. Now, I I can just imagine the fear and insecurity 
that Gideon was feeling at this moment. Just went from zero to hero really quick. A lot's happened, probably a lot of emotion, like, man, what is happening? God, you're doing this, you said this, and yet he still says, if you will. Like, I can imagine all of those insecurities. And being on this side of the story, I think if we're not careful, like, we think, man, if we were in those, in Gideon's position, like, how much more does the brother need? Like, we're reading the story, like, how much more does he need? How can Gideon still be wrestling with this? And I think something deep down inside of Gideon was something no one else saw. On the outside, it looked great. The hero just blew the ram's horn, man, people rallied the troops, let's go. But on the inside, he can't help but think, God, how am I going to do this? You want me to take down the ones that have held us in oppression for seven years? I'm it? Like, this is your answer? Me from the weakest clan? I'm the youngest? I'm it? So to me, I, I think it's a bit understandable. I don't want to be too harsh on Gideon. Like, shouldn't God's word be enough? And even if it isn't, shouldn't all that God has already done and provided, shouldn't that be confirmation? Everything that he needed. Hear me. What's the response of our loving father in this moment? I think this is why this is here. Even in those moments, if you will, in those moments of, yes, but what are you doing? There's no lecture to Gideon. There's no like fire and brimstone message of like, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, son, let's go. There's none of that. In his weakness of his faith, What does God do? He gives Gideon the sign he asked for. He asks God to make the fleece wet and the ground all around it is dry. Man, what a beautiful, this is like six sermons in this whole sermon. I'm trying to just stay focused. He asked God to make this fleece wet and the ground all around it dry. And God provides so much so that it said God squeezed, he lavishly squeezed all of this water, this dew out into a bowl. I think there's something there. He didn't just like, it wasn't just, oh, it's damp to where Gideon was like, I don't know, it's kind of wet, but it was a microcloth fiber, like, I can't really, squeezed it and filled up a bowl. Okay, that's great. He provided. God heard him. Even when that wasn't enough, Gideon asks for the opposite. Like, hey, that was cool. God, can you now take this wet fleece and make it totally dry and everything else do on the ground wet. God responds and he graciously provides. Like I don't think Gideon was really seeking guidance for God at that moment. Like I don't think it was him saying, should I? I think it was him saying, how can I? I think the struggling servant knew what he was to do. It was clear. I think Gideon was actually just being human. He needed some reassurance in his life. Isn't it sweet when our patient father doesn't condemn us? There is therefore no now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Instead, God actually gave him what he really needed, his presence. There's great comfort in all of this for each one of us. The Spirit of God gives us the grace and mercy and patience and faith and hope and boldness and endurance and kindness and joy. He gives it all to us in order that we would honor him. 
even when we find ourselves backed into a corner and our circumstances are troubling, how gracious it is that the Lord gives us countless signs of his power to overcome our biggest and most fearful challenges yet. Gideon wasn't looking for little signs to help him make a decision. You've probably heard this, throw out a fleece to the Lord. Again, that's a whole other thing. This isn't Gideon saying, should I do this? What decision should I make? He was actually seeking to understand on a deeper level the nature of God. Family, he didn't have the Bible. He didn't have baptism celebrations. He didn't have communion to take with a strong Christian community. He didn't have sermons at his fingertips on YouTube and iTunes where you can listen in a plethora of stuff. He didn't have any of that. So he was specifically addressing the places where his faith was weak and uninformed. He was asking for a supernatural revelation from God to show up and to show off. Less looking for a sign and more begging God to reveal himself to him. So when you find yourself doubting God's promises, when you find yourself doubting his presence, you can ask him to point you to Again, to his son saying, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. God can do the same for you. Father, would you be with us in these moments? Lord, would you speak to us? Draw near to us. Lord, we need you. In a simple request, I ask that you clarify anything that your spirit would Draw those wondering and skeptic to you. I even think that. Lord, you, you can handle all of that. All of our uncertainty, all of our skepticism, even all of our hate or anger towards you, you can still handle it. Would we bring that to you this morning? Lord, would you help those who do believe and just ask Help me overcome my unbelief. Would you, would you strengthen brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you strengthen the saints this morning to look around in their life, to find these moments to, to cling to that your promises are yes and amen? And Lord, we're about to sing a song about when, it, when things get hard, would we hold on to you, cling to you, remember you are with us, faithful, and true. Lord, it demands a response. Your faithfulness demands a response from us this morning. We love you. We praise you. Draw near to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.